Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 329, recorded November 30th, 2011. Browser ID. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring available Sync with My Ford Touch. Sync with My Ford Touch gets you to your destination with integrated turn-by-turn directions and directional arrows displayed on screen. Check it out in the new 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com slash technology. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you online, your online privacy uh, your security and, and of course, talks a little bit about science fiction and e-readers on the side. That, that's because of this guy here, this guy, Mr. Steve Gibson, the host speaking, of the hour. Speaking of which, I did hear an interesting suggestion. Actually, someone tweeted yeah. that maybe an interesting idea for our special holiday show would be just to do a whole episode on science fiction. I like it. Yeah, I mean, sort of go back over the recommendations, remind everybody of the stuff that we found, and talk about the authors and, and you know, just do a sci-fi That's show. That's a great idea. We'd have to do a second, uh, a special recording time. We could figure that yeah, out. Yeah, you and I would just find some time, and I'd, I'd, I'd lay out, you know, do my regular production and plan it out and okay. figure out what, we're, what we would talk about. Let's but, coordinate. I, I don't know if they've already started the best of yet. Um, but uh, if they haven't, then I think that's a great uh, idea. So we have a fallback in case there isn't enough right. best of ideas. Exactly. And I think this show's a little tough to do that with. So yeah, I agree I'm with thinking you. maybe just uh, something a that special. our listeners would find. And there, there, there seems to be a strong interest in sci-fi among our listeners. So anyway, we'll see what people think about that. And it's that. not like you'll lose anything. It would have been a, a dead spot anyway for the holidays. Yeah. So no big deal. Precise. Today we talk about Mozilla's attempt to solve the internet identity crisis um you know as we know identity is the big need we have we we talk about passwords and logins and LastPass and yubikeys and verisign and tokens and footballs and i mean this is just an ongoing issue and mozilla has weighed in there is a technology for Secure verification of an individual's email address. And what I like about what they're calling browser ID is that it it is able to use in a secure fashion email addresses that people have. So today we're going to catch up, as always, at, at the top of the show with what news has transpired in the last week. And then plow into how email addresses can be used rather than other things, but then also compare this with everything else we've looked at to sort of put it in context. And I like it because it's 
It's very simple to use, and they've managed to make it secure. So that's our topic for this week. I think it's going to be uh, good and interesting. And who knows? It might succeed. (laughs) I like your vote of confidence. It might even work. Well, we're going to try it because uh, they've created a, a demo site, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll be the guinea pig, and we'll give it a try. I think we 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 established, we started it the process ahead of time, cooking show style, and we'll see if it uh, all works. By by right when the eggs are scrambled, yeah, let's see how it tastes. Before we do, though, let's quickly talk about our friends at Ford and the great technology that Ford is putting in each and every automobile. Designing all their new cars. I just, I got just a little hint from Scott Monty. I sent him a note saying, Scott, Scott, I've been talking a lot about this Ford Focus, 2012 Focus with my Ford Touch, the sync. I want the electric vehicle. He said, we might be able to get you on the early uh, list, the influencers list. So I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. Why? Because why would I want, I have a, I already have a 2010 Mustang, which I love with the sync. You know, sync is where you press the button on the steering wheel. You keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and it tells you turn by turn directions. It walk. You can say call Steve Gibson, but you can also say set the cabin temperature to seventy three degrees. You can say where's the nearest gas station, where's the lowest gas prices. Uh, you know, uh, what where's the nearest theater? What are the movie times? I mean, all of this. Your car talks back to you. So it's awesome when you add my Ford Touch. You get the big screen in the center console, two little screens behind the steering wheel. And the thing I always forget to mention when I'm talking, I think I've spent a year just going crazy about sync, and I never really mention the fact that it's a great GPS. That's just given, right? I mean, 40 million businesses in its database, 40 million businesses. So you can say the name of a business. It will take you there. It'll even call it because it's got 40 million phone numbers, too. Um, you can, they have, uh, apps for iPhone and Android phone. So you, and even on your desktop, you can send, you can be on MapQuest or Google and send the directions to the car or to your web address. You have a a website associated with your car. I mean, it's just, it's, it's as if you said, let's step back, let's rethink automobiles. Let's take them into the 21st century. And you know, you couldn't get a better person to do that than the CEO of Ford, Alan Mulally, uh, an engineer. He, they, they took him from Boeing, where he had been a designer. He designed the 777 cockpit. So the same guy who designed the cockpit of the, of the most state-of-the-art aircraft in the air today, commercial aircraft in the air today, is, is, is behind. I'm sure he's not by hand personally designing it, but he's the inspiration, the leader, the guy who's, who's cracking the whip to design the cockpits of the new Ford vehicles. That's why they're so awesome. I want you to try one today. Just go to your Ford dealer and drive one or visit their website because they've, they've got They put together a website with all of the technologies on a single page, Ford.com slash technology. And this is for people like us who are, you know, this isn't pretty pictures of cars. This is what's the engine? How does that work? How, how's the uh, how does the hybrid work? What's the uh, keyless entry? What's that system there? Tell me a little more about the uh, the bliss with the cross traffic alert that monitors your blind spots. Tell me how that works. <laughs> it's all there. Ford.com slash technology. It is literally 21st century engineering and great vehicles, beautiful vehicles, too. I'm a big fan. And, I, and I'll tell you what, you know how much I talk about my, my I was just talking about how getting the new air and everything. Wait till I get that electric, electric forward focus. You won't, you won't hear the end of that one. You'll be sorry you asked. I, I'm so excited. Uh, Steve, let us get to work, you and me. So I just thought I would follow up on the wacky Illinois water pump, yeah. uh, SCADA 
failure issue. Remember that one of the things I talked about, I sort of, we, we finished debunking it. Well, we started and finished debunking it last week. I had, I had not mentioned it for a couple of weeks because it just seemed a little sketchy to me. But one of the things that lent it some credibility seemed to be very definite um, teasers, like the fact that there was a Russian IP address that had been caught in some of the logs, which everyone jumped on and said, oh, it's been, you know, this was hacked from Russia. Well, it turns out that a legitimate contractor working for the water utility district was traveling in Russia. Oh, please. And had legitimate access to the network. And that's where the Russian IP came from. So it's like that's okay. really kind of annoying. <laughs> so so we'll just you know we'll be a little calmer next time and wait. Well, for the it's not that. us. No, but the industry has learned a lesson because the industry just jumped all over this. Well, and, who 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 was the guy? Where did this original report come from? Because that's who. Uh, I- it, it came from a blogger who yeah. um, had some contact with the. Um, with the water district, but then also one of the administrators said either on radio or television the day after that there was, you know, that this had happened, that it looked to them like there had been a penetration and that the, the failure of this water pump was a consequence of the fact that the SCADA system had, was under control of some remote entity that, you know, hostile. So annoying. Okay. So annoying. (laughs) Well, now there you go. I I didn't remember whether I had said before that Windows 8 Windows Update was going to acquire some some welcome features because one of the annoying things about um, Windows, and I hear people talking about this all the time, is they'll they'll wake up their machine in the morning and see that it has rebooted itself, which is sometimes annoying. So what Microsoft is going to explicitly do, uh, starting with Windows 8, and apparently not change this behavior in prior versions, and I don't know why they wouldn't, but uh, maybe when they release 8, they will, they'll backport this to earlier versions, although that's not what I understand. But Windows 8, they will deliberately consolidate any changes that will require a, re- a a reboot and consolidate those so that that a single restart will will be required and not multiples and they will in any event provide a depending upon the user's configuration because this is sometimes a a, a system by system determinant whether or not a given machine needs to be restarted. So Windows will determine that and then give the user a three-day warning prior to a restart event. So they can they can say, okay, just, you know, I've, I've saved all of my data. Go ahead and do it now. Um, in any event, there'll be, it'll be much less inconvenient to have than having Windows just decide at 3 a.m. that it's going to restart and, uh, it doesn't warn you. I, I always thought it kind of let you know, at least. It doesn't even do that. 
No, typically people just realize they like they they like their system looks strange oh. and they go, wait a minute, something What's happened. It's like, oh my god, yeah. it restarted. So I was yeah. in the middle of a, a a very important project the other day, and Windows it didn't reboot, but it like took me out of the pro. I was playing a video game. Okay. Okay. I was hey, killing Leo, trolls. It was important for you. It was. Yes. I'm in the middle yeah. of killing trolls, and all of a sudden, whoosh, and then Windows says, "Hey, we got it. You want to update now?" It's like, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, That's I really often, not good I'll, behavior. I don't think it's annoying when you you when you're you're telling it. You just hold off a minute. Let me finish what I'm doing because I've got all this stuff going on, and I don't want to do it right now. And then it keeps popping up and saying, "Hey, don't forget, it's time to you. You need to restart." I like, yeah, I understand yeah, the I need. I mean, you know, to to get people to update. I do understand that, but I, yeah. you know, come on. So Bruce Schneier, our great friend and Love cryptographer, um, in his recent blog quoted uh, a Juniper Networks blog that had a couple interesting stats that I wanted to share. Um, and the title of, of Bruce's blog entry was Android Malware. The Android platform is where the malware action is. And so the, the Juniper Networks blog poses the question or asks itself rhetorically, what happens when anyone can develop and publish an application to the Android market? The answer is a 472% increase in Android malware samples since July of this year. Now, does so, that mean 472 malware applications on the market? Yes. Wow. They said these days it seems all you need is a developer account that is relatively easy to anonymize, pay $25, and you can post your applications. In addition to an increase in the volume, the attackers continue to become more sophisticated in the malware they're writing. For instance, in the early spring, we began seeing Android malware that was capable of leveraging one of several platform vulnerabilities that allowed malware to gain root access on the device in the background and then install additional packages to the device to extend the functionality of the malware. But today, just about every piece of malware that is released contains this capability simply because the vulnerabilities remain prevalent in nearly 90% of Android devices being carried around. Wow. So, that's yes. That's that's wow. uh, that's what the hackers are having fun doing. They're saying, "Hey, let's you know." I mean, they're they're curious and, and interested in wanting to develop for the latest things. And Android is interesting and fun, and they've got Android phones, so they, or or tablets or or whatever device. So that's what they're doing. Is uh is that's sort of where it's caught their attention. Now, Android we market. shouldn't, I mean, uh, there's, uh, there's underneath that statement, I just want to be clear, there's, there's the implication that somehow, because the Apple store is more regulated, uh, it's less vulnerable. It's, it is. And, and <laughs> well, yeah, except that... Uh, not, not perfect, but... Far from perfect. Far yes. from perfect. I'll give you two examples. Uh, Charlie, uh, what's his name? Miller. Miller. Put it, a, posted, uh, wrote example code and posted it, and Apple approved it. 
Yep. And then their response to that was to kick Charlie Miller out of the developers program. Yes. Unfortunately, they they reacted in a way that I think was inappropriate. He was a security researcher. He notified them months in advance that he had found something that they should fix. And, and I'll give you another example. Yesterday, Apple approved a program that explicitly said it was designed to do tethering of the iPhone around the carrier's objection. Apple approved it. Then when people start writing articles, even though it said Tether was the name of the program, wow. by the way, Apple approved it and, and then pulled it after a number of articles were written about it. So wow. I really don't, I think that's very clear evidence. Two pieces, and I'm sure there's more, that Apple is not paying the kind of attention to the, the stuff that it's approving that you would yeah, expect. Yeah, I don't think, that they, I, I don't think they can't. That, that they can. They can't. Yeah. There's too much. So yeah. I don't think there's 246 pieces of malware in the Apple store, but I don't think there's no malware. I don't think that that means there's no malware. That I think the good news on both Android and iPhone, the, the thing that I would say is important is, A, they all have kill switches. So when malware is found, it can be deleted immediately from your phone. They can reach yes. into your phone and take it. And the second thing is I think that they are taking a little more care in designing these mobile platforms with sandboxing and so forth. Apple perhaps more so than uh, Android. But I think that that is going to make these less attractive in the long run because it's yes, just not and as I, easy. And I think, I think we're in the early days. And, and, and they're, as, this, as this quote indicated, they are taking advantages of, of known problems which still exist. So it, it's, a, it's the typical... Malware, anti-malware, cat and mouse game where these platforms need to be updated in order to close some of these holes. The takeaway is, is very similar, though, to the, to the takeaway with today's drive-by phishing and email and link clicking. You know, we tell people, do not click on links, no matter how tasty looking they are, in unsolicited email that you receive. That's the way most systems, most desktop systems are getting infected. And so I would say, fun as it is to run every application which presents itself as, you know, run me, run me on your Android phone, you just don't want to do that. I would say be careful. Well, be that's careful. for sure true. And, be and careful about there, what you run. There's and even a greater risk on Android because they have a checkbox in the preferences that says, uh, is it okay to install uh, apps from third party, not just the marketplace? And uh, while they do warn you and when you check it, this is now, you got to understand this is risky. Most people do turn it on because there's a lot of great stuff you can get at third party uh, sources. You'd have to jailbreak an yeah. iPhone to do that. Yeah. So, so again, the takeaway is if, I mean, sure, if you've got a platform that is your plate, your, you know, your, your, your toy and you don't have information there, you're not using it for anything serious, you want to just mess with it, then fine. Load everything you want to. But if you're a serious user, you, you've got, you know, contacts and, and you know, address books and you, you do go to sensitive sites, you use this as your multi-purpose flat platform, then, then today's, the, the, the today's equivalent risk to clicking on uns, you know links in unsolicited email over in not not only android but also the ios platform is apps you know those are the things you need to be 
careful about. And so don't just go running around being promiscuous and loading everything you can get your hands on because they're, they're, you know, it is a magnet for, for malicious activity. And so that's really the takeaway that I wanted to, to offer. And that's, that is what, what Bruce was, that's the point that Bruce was making. Right. It's not, um, by the way, 472 apps. I mis- misspoke. It was a 472% increase. Correct. Which is a weird number. I'd like to know what the number of apps is. Because if it's four apps, that means there's 17. <laughs> if there's one app, it means there's five. I mean, what is that number? That's a very good point. Yes. I hate it Although, when they do that. And you know, it's always malware companies that do that because they want to scare the hell out of you. I don't know if Juniper right. Network sells any malware, but uh, they do. Okay. So consider the source. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't mean it's wrong. No. And the takeaway but is... But that's interesting. Is, they give a percentage, not a number. Right? Okay. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. Uh, I'd like to know the number. Okay. Everybody, just be careful with the apps you load. Yes. No, no. The, the message is absolutely valid. I just don't want people to get terrified because there's a 472% increase. <laughs> so, um, Brian Krebs, our... our uh, illustrious security blogger um, has noted in a recent blog that I thought was interesting. Um, I wanted to remind people about Java because he noted that an, a new exploit that takes advantage of a recently patched critical security flaw in Java is making the rounds in the criminal underground, which is what Brian really does. He does a great job of keeping a, a, a hit, an eye on what's going on among all of the exploit um, uh, forums on the net. And he says, this exploit, which appears to work against all but the latest versions of Java, is being folded into automated attack tools. And that's what I find really significant. Um, He said, the exploit attacks a vulnerability that exists in Oracle, uh, Java, uh, the JDK, and the runtime 7 and 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 6 update 27 and earlier. So it's only the latest one, uh, update 29, and Java 7, which is still not quite released yet, update 1, um, that are secure. So I'll remind our listeners, you can just go to java.com, and that's, you know, that's the site where this can be found, just java.com, and, and there's a link that is do I have Java, which I like because it's not going to install the latest version if you don't have it. It checks to see whether you have it, and then you can check to see whether you've got the latest version. So, so what, what's happening is the, this, this critical security flaw, by having it moving into the automated attack tools, it then gets just incorporated sort of automatically into all of these things that, that the bad guys are using for getting into our machines. And that's where we begin to see the prevalence of its usage increase. So just further reason to make sure if you've got Java installed in your machine that it, it is update 29 or that is Java 6 update 29 or Java 7 update 1. Um, and that reminded me that we hadn't talked about FireSheep for a while and so I thought, because that was the classic, super simple, you don't need to know anything about computers in, either, in, e- in order to, to acquire um, access through impersonation to, for example, in an open Wi-Fi environment, anybody's online sessions that are not being secured by SSL connections. So I just 
jumped over, and we are now at 1,980,000 downloads of Fire Sheep. So it was, it was a little over a year ago that we talked about Fire Sheep. It was, uh, it was released on October 24th of 2010. So here we are toward the end of November, about a month and a year later, and it's almost at 2 million downloads. Um, so, and remember, that's the thing. You just download it and you go to an open Wi-Fi. It runs for, it, it is an, an add-on to Firefox. And as you sit there in, in an open Wi-Fi environment, it's you start seeing yeah. people's faces popping in over on the left-hand bar. I had it on, um, my, as, uh, on my laptop for a long time. I finally took it off because I was just embarrassed <laughs> 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 that it was even running. I was afraid I'd, I'd get caught, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it's freaky. Yeah. You, you, you just open it, and then it's like, oh, yeah, there's that guy sitting over there. It's just and, creepy. Oh, and, then, yeah. and there she is. And, and, you, and they're doing things with Yahoo. Like, there's a lot of uses of, of, of Yahoo and, and, um, and a lot of Facebook also. And, Although you know, I bet you are, that's better now that they're using HTTPS. Yes. yes, and that's the key is as these services have been moving to persistent HTTPS, largely inspired by now the right. year-old Fire Sheep. Um, this is no longer as effective as it once was. That but. would go in a best of, except that it was a year ago. You were yep. you were, and you were so happy about Fire Sheep. <laughs> I was and, giddy, and, and we you were giddy, and and I was going, uh, Steve, uh, get really giddy. It sounds like a hacker tool, and you were absolutely right because you said, well, this is going to force the issue of HTTPS everywhere, and I think that you were absolutely right. And now Facebook does it, Twitter does it, Google does it. I think that's exactly uh, that was the impact. Um, Brian also, Brian Krebs also blogged something that I thought was very interesting. Uh, and I think he coined the term malvertising. Uh, <laughs> He's the only one to take credit for it anyway. <laughs> he detected attempted malvertising on his own site. Wow. He was, he was in, he was in an, uh, an exclusive underground hacker forum. Hmm where he found some discussion among these hackers about buying buying ads on his site to which were going to be deliberately infected wow. with malware. Wow. And so he blogged, he said, members of an exclusive underground hacker forum recently sought to plant malware on KrebsOnSecurity.com. I guess they didn't know Brian was a member of the exclusive hacker forum. <laughs> exactly. By paying to run tainted advertisements through the site's advertising network, which was federated media. The attack was unsuccessful thanks to a variety of safeguards, but it highlights the challenges that many organizations face in combating the growing scourge of malvertising. So now we have malvertising. <laughs> it's interesting is, though it is an issue and in fact we've seen it before it happened on myspace all the time because people don't vet the uh the advertising they have automated systems that allow you to buy that yep. advertising yep it just i mean it is scary it, it's a way that that bad guys could say we want to target a specific site that has that has you know access to the kinds of of uh of uh viewers right that they want I also wanted to bring to our listeners' attention that Yubico is having a holiday discount. Normally, the Yubikeys are 
$25 each for the holidays, I think through the end of the year, um, they have a 10-pack for $99. 10 for, wow, that's a good deal. Yes. So you get five white Yuba Keys and five black Yuba Keys, 10 for $99. I tweeted this and I had some responses from people saying, hey, thanks. Um, they're going to give them as Christmas presents since that brings the price down to $10 for a Yuba Key. So you can give secure authentication for Christmas. And there was a story about HP printers, which I had on my list of things to get to, but I got so sucked into figuring out exactly how browser ID was working <laughs> that I didn't have a chance to go back and nail the story down. The, the, and maybe you heard about it, Leo. It's somehow it's there's an internet vulnerability on HP firmware, which allows bad guys to change the firmware and and shut down your printer over the internet. So Good anyway, Lord. I've got I will track it down. Tom and I Tom probably covered it on on his on his daily news because I got every it week, was a yeah. lot of coverage um on yeah on, on, on TNT. But anyway, I will between now and next week make time to to follow up and figure out what that's all about so everybody can stop sending me notes in Twitter because I've been getting a lot of notices about it. So I do I wanted to let everyone know I know about it. I just haven't had a chance to nail it down. Um also, everyone knows from our talking about um, ultra capacitors that I'm interested in capacitors and transportation. So there was an interesting blurb about Mazda putting large capacitors in their next year model cars, their mm. 2012 cars. And uh, they use the term double layer capacitor without ever explaining what it is, but it's clearly a very large capacitor. And so... What they've done is, uh, what they've done is clever. They, when when the driver takes their foot off the accelerator, an alternator is engaged as part of the braking system to charge a large capacitor. Now, an alternator will will generate a varying voltage. So it could be much greater than the car's normal 12 volts DC operating voltage, which is just fine because you'd like to charge the capacitor to as high a voltage as possible. And then what, what's clever about this is it doesn't attempt to use the energy in the capacitor for automotive, that, 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 that is for motive force. That is, it doesn't turn the alternator into a motor and like dump the capacitor back into the drivetrain, so it's not it's not trying to capture the momentum and then it reinject it. Instead, it simply uses the 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 um, the charge in the capacitor for the car's electrical system, which I thought was kind of clever oh. because you, instead of the car battery, it, well, exactly. So it. Well, actually, the battery is there, you know, to like start the car. But normally, it's the car's alt the car's normal alternator is used to power, you know, all of the stuff going on in the car, the entertainment system, the multiple computers that we have, and you know, anything else. Well, it turns out that that's 
that provides that that all of the electrical demands on a contemporary car are enough that it substantially affects the, the car's gas mileage. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. And, and we know for example that like when you turn on the air compressor, now that's that's both the compressor but also the mechanical drag that the that, that the mechan that, that the, the compressor has on the car, but but the alternator itself that normally runs the car's um, systems is lowering the mileage. So Mazda has found that if they if they use an alternator for braking in order to char and capture that energy in the capacitor, and then they use a DC to DC step down converter. To, to like step down whatever essentially a voltage regulator to but an efficient one to to bleed that capacitor that stored the momentum during braking to bleed that as 12 volts dc into the car's electrical system that lightens the load on the alternator which would otherwise be doing that and substantially improves gas mileage so very That's cool. cool. So it's not a hybrid. It's not right. a electric car, but it, by being more efficient in terms of its electrical system, you're more efficient well, with fuel. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you you cringe about is we all have disc brakes on our car, right? And, and those that's wasted just, energy. Yeah, absolutely. They're heating up. They're smoking. You know, they're just big clamps that just clamp down on this spinning disc and dissipate your energy in 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 heat. And so it's like, wait a minute, that's really dumb because we just we we burned all this gas or maybe electricity getting ourselves going. Then we throw it away in our disc brakes. So instead, let's electronically brake the car and capture that energy. Well, sometimes they capture it and then try to use it for automotive force. Here, they're just using it for electricity, which ends up. And again, the the thing that the reason that's neat is that all of these conversions are lossy so the law there it's a lossy process in the alternator to convert the mechanical momentum into electricity it's lossy again to convert the electricity back into mechanical momentum in a motor to re-accelerate the car so by saying wait a minute we're not going to accept that second phase of loss we're going to use the electricity for electricity because we need that in the car too, yeah. and that'll improve improve our mileage. I thought that was just very clever. You know, it's an interesting issue on electric cars, is that uh, modern you know gas engines generate so much heat yep. that you can heat the car easily. <laughs> you got plenty of spare heat, but an electric yes. engine they actually have to drain the elect the batteries to heat the car. So these newer electric cars uh, they have to do all sorts of interesting things to get them heated without depleting the battery. Ah, and heating is a very energy-consuming exactly. process. So most of them, yeah. have, for instance, seat heaters, which is a much more efficient way to uh, heat you up. <laughs> okay, I'm not. I'm going to skip. You all got the a jokes. warm bottom, <laughs> exactly. That's but yeah. you know what? It's not so bad. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have enjoyed over the last. Um, uh, it's been a while. Uh, tracking those intrepid little rovers around Mars, Spirit and Opportunity. Yeah. We talked about it many times because those little suckers, you know, a, a, a storm would come along and coat their little solar cells with dust and then they'd stop for a while. But then 
then the dust would get blown off and they'd wake up and, and, you know, everyone at JPL would have, you know, pop some more champagne corks. And those little suckers just kept on going, roaming all over the place. So I wanted to note that the Mega Rover was launched on Saturday uh, by an unmanned Atlas V rocket. And it's now making an eight and a half month, 354 Wait, 354 miles? That can't be right. A thousand, maybe? A thousand miles? 354 million miles? Maybe million miles. 354 times 10 to the question mark. Yes. Uh, but uh, it's making a long trip to Mars. So it'll, it will be... Well, it's definitely more than 340,000. It must be 354 yeah. million. Got to be yeah. a million. Yeah, because it's... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's Mars. It's, it's out it's there. It's a long way. So yeah. um, it's, and it's on its way. And so eight and a half months from now, I'm sure this podcast will note its arrival. Now, remember that the way the two cute little rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, landed was that they inflated a bunch of balloons and they were sort of in the middle of this big balloon thing that they just dropped on, you know, I mean, there were some parachutes that brought it down close. Then basically it just sort of dropped it on Mars and it bounced around and rolled for a while and then unfold. And then the balloons deflated in a very clever system, which then then got this whole balloon thing out of the way. Well, this sucker. okay, this is this weighs a ton. This new mega rover, it's called the MSL, the Mars Science Laboratory. And its name in, in the same in the same spirit of having spirit and opportunity, this one is called Curiosity. So this is the Curiosity rover. Um, it's a $2.5 billion mission. Um, it weighs a ton. It's the size of a car. It is nuclear-powered. Wow. It contains 10.6 pounds of radioactive plutonium for power. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Wow. So um, it's 10 feet long by nine feet wide, although it's also, you know, I mean, like if you measured it, it's got, you know, it, it's got that it's got that sort of articulated design where it's got wheels out at the end of little little um, arms. It has a 10 foot arm with a jackhammer on the end, a 10 foot mast sticking straight up that has HD and laser cameras and um, they said it's only supposed to like, like wander off around um, ten miles or so. But it's going to—they're—they're they're dropping it using a new technology, which everyone's holding their breath about. You can't drop this thing that weighs a ton using balloons. So they have a a, a new approach for getting it down on Mars that involves involves some sort of a hooking system. I haven't—I didn't ever see any videos about it. Um, we'll be talking about that eight and a half months from now. So with any luck. It will be successful. Many missions to Mars fail. Um, it, uh, the, the the JPL guys regard that Mars as sort of the the uh, Bermuda Triangle yeah. of of projects. In fact, I think Russia just screwed up and got the. the oh, and it was in Earth orbit. They were hit, trying to get to Mars, and and whatever it is they were doing wouldn't leave Earth orbit. So it's like, whoops! Uh, right. <laughs> Mars claimed another victim, sort of indirectly. So. Um, I think that'll be fun to keep an eye on. Curiosity as it lands on the red planet. This could be kind of neat. Huge. It looks like huge. a flying saucer, by the way. 
Have you seen? Oh, it? no kidding. Well, it's a ball, but it's uh, yeah, it definitely. If I or ballish, if I were, you know, this is kind of a UFO looking device. <laughs> I'm just looking at some video of it. Well, uh, if there are any, if there are any Martians, the Martians are going to say, "What the hell?" They're going to go, "Wait a minute, that's a flying saucer." <laughs> you were right. It's true. There are other people out there. Exactly. It's coming in the wrong direction, though, because wow. those flying saucers were supposed to be from Mars, not going to Mars. It is the strangest design for landing that I've ever seen. It's very intriguing. This is uh, this is uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Eight and a half months. We will be tracking. Curiosity. I just love the ingenuity that's involved oh, in, gosh, in all yes. of this. Yeah, they, uh, so basically there's three parts to it. There's the flying saucer part. Uh, the, uh, the, then there will be a, a craft that will eject from the flying saucer. And then it will drop the rover via wires. <laughs> it re-enters. It's very interesting. Then it flies off. So maybe because I heard something about hook, so maybe it's, it's a it's, sky hook. It's technology. like a sky hook, exactly. So, so, it, so it's staying up in orbit and then lowering this thing down. Well, it comes in. It does make an entry uh, and on, on and has uh, you know retro fire to keep it from crash landing. But once it gets close enough to the surface, it drops the rover down via wires, oh. and then flies off. It's very oh. interesting. So I guess you know they did the last time. Remember they tried the bouncing ball. Remember that they was had a spirit and opportunity landed. Yeah, boing, yes. boing, boing. This is something completely different. I just love the ingenuity. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Well, speaking of ingenuity, I got a nice note from Samuel Gordon Stewart. He said, Steve and staff, Spinright just saved me. Now, this is an interesting one. I don't know if I've talked about this, certainly not for a long time. He says, I have an old DOS application, which for years... I've been running off my hard drive. I only need to use it occasionally. And when I went to use it today, I discovered that I'd accidentally deleted it. Probably in my recent clean-out of files I supposedly didn't need. Clearly, I did. So, I whipped out the floppy disk, which has the application and related files on it. I went to copy it to the hard drive and nearly had a heart attack when it would no longer copy. Windows couldn't read the main executable. I took this as an opportunity to do something I've been meaning to do for a while. I bought Spinrite. Yay. I let it loose on the floppy disk. It went a few minutes working, then dropped into Dynastat in various places. When I got back into Windows, I was able to copy the disk to the hard drive. I don't think it's possible to get a replacement copy for this DOS application that I'm using these days. So the $89 I spent on Spinrite bought me enough time to get the files one last time off the diskette and saved me an awful lot of trouble. Thanks, Steve. Spinrite is fantastic. Regards, Samuel Gordon Stewart in Canberra. So anyway, I want to remind people, not that many people use floppies any longer. I realize that. But uh, it does a great job of recovering contents of diskettes, which yes. are often, after a long time, no longer readable. Stale. Yeah. I never thought of it for that. Yeah. Intriguing. Hey, uh, let's, uh, we're going to just a bit talk about browser ID uh, with Steve. But first, let's talk just briefly about Netflix.com, the best way to get shows. I was, uh, I was uh, watching a friend on a social network. And uh, he said, just started to sit down and watch Friday Night Lights. And I thought, Netflix streaming for the win. 
The entire Friday Night Lights. Whoops, we're now watching a movie. I should stop that. <laughs> Back to the browser. It's that easy. It is. Know. Well, you see how easy it is. Uh, it's just, Netflix is $7.99. Lord of the Rings. Uh, Scarface. What happens sometimes I'll get home and I say, oh, remember that moment in, you know, Scarface? Say hello to my little friend. And you might kind of want to watch that. And you just, boom, it's there. Boom. Just like that. Frank Zappa's 200 Motels. Wow, there's a classic. All the time new stuff shows up, and it's very exciting. TV shows, movies. Netflix is, of course, as you know, doing uh, their own production now. They just uh, picked up uh, Arrested Development. So you're going to see more and more on this. $7.99 a month. Now most of you are members already, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But if you're not... Try it free for a month, netflix.com slash twit. And if you are, do me a favor. Do, do Steve a favor. Help us out. Just mention this to a friend who doesn't have Netflix. Give him the free trial, netflix.com slash twit. And we thank him so much for their support of the entire twit network. All right. Browser ID. I'm ready for some okay. free beer, Steve. So, um... <laughs> Yes. Now that sounds like a little bit of a non sequitur. He'll explain. To those who explain. weren't listening before before we began recording. <laughs> yes. Um, we have a couple of things. Some some fun takeaways for our listeners. Some places to go. Some things to do. Um, we've talked about identity and authentication often on this podcast because ever, as everyone knows, I think it's like the big problem we need to solve. How do the services that we want to use on the internet know that we are who we say we are. Um, we talked about VeriSign, the PayPal, football. Uh, of course, the, the YubiKey I just talked about again, a one-time password system. I've spent a lot of time you know, uh, developing my own pa uh, perfect paper passwords. Um, and of course, now the, the off-the-grid uh, paper-based crypto system. Uh, we've talked about OpenID and OpenAuth. Um, LastPass, of course, is is still the system that I'm using largely. Well, there's another entry into the game that's uh, only a few months old and, and was recently launched by the Mozilla folks, the people, of course, who famously brought us the, the Firefox browser and some email clients and so forth. And this is called, they call it Browser ID. The thing that I like about this is that it is 100% open source. It's open everything, non-proprietary. Uh, it is cross-browser. It is incredibly easy, not only for the user to use, but for a website to decide they want to support. That is, in order to, if, they, if they wish to allow users to authenticate to them, to log in with a... Uh, on, on a verifiable identity, you know, they could create their own, you know, create an account with us. What's your username? What's your email address? You know, we'll send you email, click on the link to confirm your email, you know, what's your password, you know, and, and that's what all websites traditionally have been doing. We end up, of course, with this, this problem that we're having to create email, we're having to create identities often with an email address, often with a password, individually for all these websites. How much nicer would it be if there was some, some central means for doing this? So 
you know, we're, we're beginning to see this. I'm happy, for example, although I'm unhappy, as we've talked about often with PayPal, I'm happy to every time I go somewhere and I see PayPal as an option as in order to purchase something. Because it's like, oh, yay, I don't have to give this site that I may not trust my my purchasing information. They'll use PayPal as my as my purchasing provider. So that's a benefit for me. Similarly, um, we're now seeing sites that are saying you can log in using your Facebook identity. You you know log in you uh, as um, using Google or using Twitter or Facebook. Well, now in though in that instance, they're using OpenID or OpenAuth in order to to use your the fact that some other service knows who you are and we have talked about that extensively we've 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 covered those technologies before so so what the mozilla guys decided was okay let's see what's the simplest thing we can use and they they thought about it decided well that's our email address the email address is something all of us have at least one of many cases multiple of and in fact it's it is the thing that we are constantly proving we have control of because that's the way we do password recovery it's you know if you lose your password then you know email me a link that i can use in order to recover it the point is control of our email address is already the lowest common denominator. That's what everything else falls back to if all else fails. If we forget our credentials, if we don't remember what our username was or our password, it's like, okay, well, send it to my email account. And it's because I uniquely have control of that, that, that you know, that's, that's like the, 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 well, I already said it, the, the lowest common denominator. So, the Mozilla guy said, okay, let's stop there. Let's not go any further. Let's use that which we already have as the means for identifying users. So, Leo, before we began recording, I asked you to go to a, a demo site, which these guys have set up, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's a nice uh, example of how this works. And it is myfavoritebeer.org. So I would encourage our listeners to do this too. Anyone who's interested about this, I, w- I, I played the game. I did this. And I have to say I was surprised when I understood what was going on behind the scenes, which I will be describing in a minute, but how, how transparent this was, how easy this was to do. So... Go to myfavoritebeer.org, and it's a site, sort of like a sample site, like any site could be, that is decided to support the Mozilla browser ID system. And when you when you bring up myfavoritebeer.org, up in the upper right is just a little icon that says sign in. If you if you do that, you're presented with a a, a dialogue asking for an email address which you want to use as your identity. Part of the system is that you can use as many 
email addresses as you have chosen to set up, one or multiple. If the browser know if the browser knows that you have have authenticated more than one email address, then it'll give you a list of them and you can decide which identity that is email identity you choose to use that is you you choose to present as your login for that site so um so what what happens with with myfavoritebeer.org is if you haven't yet created a browser id identity and you typically wouldn't have by then you would you would say uh, you give it your an email address that you control and submit that it would explain that it is going to send that address a link which you need to click in order to prove your ownership of that email account. So that's the typical email account authentication loop that we're all familiar with doing whenever we're, we're needing to prove we own, we, we have ownership of this email address. Um, so then you check your email client. It will have emailed you a link which you click, and that confirms your ownership. And, of course, the link's got some crypto gobbledygook in it, just a big, you know, a, a big UUID-style um, uh, token, which is used one time to because only you who controls that email address would be able to know what that token is and then click on the link in order to authenticate. So the act of doing that works with JavaScript that's running in your browser and um, with asymmetric keys. The browser generates a public and private key um, given the fact that it has gotten verification that you you own this email address. And it's using HTML5 local private storage, it's able to maintain that that essentially your browser then stores this this private key and its and the email address that has been associated um, you there are a number of ways that that the public key can be stored for example there is browserid.org is a is a is a facility that that will that will maintain um, on behalf of users, their their email address and public keys that allow other sites to to query them for the public key. So, the browser maintains a set of email addresses and and the private key, and it the browser creates this asymmetric key pair, which is then authenticated through this email loop in order to create certificates which it keeps then if you want to log in to a website that supports browser id the website will just show you a little login and typically say you know you you can use browser id in order to log into me much like this um uh my my favorite beer.org site does and you're you're simply presented with when you when when you click the login a list of any email addresses which your browser has had confirmed for it 
and you log in. It's that simple. So you are spared from the per site login problems. You have authenticated that you control the email address. Now, the the website that you're logging into can can sort of essentially make a query to the the site that contains the public key that matches in order to verify your certificate. So there is a there is a trusted third party which which can and there can be as many of them as you like. You can choose who you want to use to to store your credentials. You could store them yourself. And in fact, it is possible for for email systems themselves to support this browser ID protocol. That is, they're, they're, as part of this trusted email technology, it is there is a facility where you would not need a third party at all. That is, the actual email service can provide this this certificate signing and storage and verify email ownership to third parties. So, um, so, so essentially that's, that's the way the system works is, I mean, it's, it's almost spooky how simple this is yet the, the, the Mozilla guys have, have come up with a, a simple way of binding an email address to a private key, which the browser holds. And then any website that you want to authenticate to is, is able to receive that certificate essentially from your browser, which asserts that that you are who you are, that is that, that you have proven your ownership of this email identity, it then queries the 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 trusted third party that you have associated with that to get your public key, which it uses to verify the signature, and and, and that's all there is to it. So it ends up being very easy to use. Um, so, so let's stand back a bit and look at this compared to the other guides. We know that like, for example, or uh, that is the, the, the other technologies that we've talked about. We've talked about VeriSign, which is a proprietary system, um, where they do have both software and hardware tokens. The, the, the software tokens, for example, running in a smartphone are, are no charge to the user. The hardware tokens like the football or the credit card are not free. So you have to buy them once, but then using them is, is no charge to the user. Although it is very expensive to actually use the system. That is anyone who supports the VeriSign authentication is paying a substantial cost per authentication. So that's VeriSign's proprietary model for making money on their their VIP, their VeriSign identity provider technology, um, YubiKey, of course, is a is a favorite of ours. Um, there, you purchase the one-time password hardware, which is the little USB uh, key token. Um, you 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 buy that once and you own it, and they provide free authentication forever so you get multi-factor authentication uh, you get zero per use cost anyone who wants to support it 
is able to accept a YubiKey login and then use the YubiKey server infrastructure in order to provide the multi-factor authentication on the fly. Um, it is supported by other authenticators. You know, for example, LastPass is able to, to use the YubiKey. Um, and didn't I remember that Gmail started using it? Google They now? have a second factor authentication. Oh, no, wait. They have their own. They, they have, have their, their own. own. They have that authenticator, the Google authenticator. Right, yeah. right. So, so they have their own. Um, Which actually, have, I mean, as much as I love the YubiKey, the idea of having it in my cell phone is so much easier. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, and then, uh, then, then there's, there's OpenID and OpenAuth, right. which is gaining traction pretty rapidly. Good, because it's a um, good system. It really is a good system. Uh, version 2 of, of OpenID is secure. It solved a problem that version 1 had. And, and we're seeing more and more, you know, people saying, oh, you can, if you want to, log in using your Facebook identity or using your Twitter identity or using your Google identity. So those services, Twitter, Facebook, Google, and many others are are provide our identity providers that that allow you to to essentially your browser bounces behind the scenes bounces an, an authentication off of them and if you're logged in with them currently it's transparent you may need to log in on the fly if you're not already logged in with them then they'll confirm your authentication with them and then provide that back to the site that, that you want to log in on so so that's got broad and growing support um, there's a little privacy concern in as much as as that that like they know they your they they serving as your authentication provider know the sites that you're visiting because you are bouncing you know that that site is making a query of them and then they're providing the authentication information back so there is a little bit of that although in the browser ID model that I mentioned. There, by default, there is that also. That is, the, the site that you're logging into with browser ID is, is pinging your, your trusted third party in order to get your, your public key for verification. It is possible to avoid that, and that is to have, uh, and the way that's done is that you can have a, your, your browser contain that authentication with, for example, a time limit where you can say this is good for a week of, of no additional authentication use, it then, it then has that signed with a time limit. And so, so the, the, the public key of the authenticator is used to verify the signature rather than the individual's public key. So then, then you're not, you're not, the, the site you're logging into isn't querying for your credentials. They're just querying for the authenticator's signature, very much the way our public key system works now where you're just getting the, the, the private key of the certificate authority and verifying that it signed this, the, um, the identity certificate. And so, of course, in addition, we have LastPass. So LastPass is cross-browser. It gives us cloud syncing. So our instances of LastPass running on all of our various devices uses the net and the cloud 
for keeping all of itself synced. Um, the advantage it has, of course, is that it requires no support at all from websites. That is, everything is centralized in the browser. We're able to use different complex usernames and passwords for every site. Um, it's, it's kept cryptographically stored in the browser um, with no, um, with no per, um, uh, no per site, uh, support required. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's universal today. Um, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I'm just glad that it's not Mozilla.org only. I do wish, I mean, right. how does it integrate with OpenID? Is it uh, a completely separate system? Because, open, yes. I mean, that's what bugs me. We have an open standard. If everybody would just get behind it, is this better in some way? Yeah, so I think what's going to happen is that that we'll, we will end up with a smorgasbord of solutions for a while. Yeah, that's and, not good. Well, well, the, the, the Mozilla guys are going to end up, you know, tossing their hat in the ring, too. Yeah. They will be building it into Firefox. And there, there is a video that we really should take a look at. Um, I don't think it makes sense because we have largely an audio listenership. I could just here. show it in the background. Um, it's, if you it's on YouTube. Uh, and if you just put in, if you search YouTube for browser ID, um, it's a... It's a beautiful example of this system working, and it makes a compelling case for for once this is integrated into our browser, because after all, the browser is the client that we're using for do for to to, to um, you know as our interface to all these services. For example, they will be Mozilla will be building this into the so-called the Chrome, that is, you know, all of the user interface right. of the browser. The user's identity as their email address will show to the left of the URL, sort of in front of the URL. If in, you're in using sort of, a supporting browser. If you're, well, yeah, well, well, in Firefox, it'll be built in. Now, again, this is all open source. Uh, any browsers who wanted to su could support it. You don't need, it, it runs, it's able to run just using JavaScript. So, for example, right now it runs on Safari and Chrome and IE and, and Firefox everywhere. That is the existing browser ID does, but it can be integrated more deeply in, 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 into the browser to give you a more seamless experience. And you can, if you want to, you can establish your credentials once with your browser, and then, and then as you go to other sites that want you to log in, which support browser ID, it can be made transparent. So, and again, you, you, you need to fit this with the use case. For example, I'm the only one using my machine. I'm the only one using my various laptops. So, and I, I, I have those secured. So once I'm using them, I'm happy with, you know, my, my identity being authenticated painlessly there are other people who do want you know like to use their yubikey every single time they log in or, or they want to re-authenticate to LastPass in order to allow LastPass to to securely log them in to other sites so so the, i believe based on what i've seen this has a good chance of getting gaining some traction but as you said leo there's already 
some alternatives. Yeah, we support well, I, uh, we support a number of uh, choices, and unfortunately, the marketplace is supporting Facebook Connect, which is the least okay. good choice here. But that's but, but every every website in the world now, including ours, I hate to say it, because user demand will allow right. you to authenticate with Facebook Connect. Yeah, I, so so probably it would be better if more options were made available. Yeah. And maybe that's what will happen. For example, if browser ID being pushed by Mozilla uh, is picked up, I don't know if, if it would be competing with what Google is doing. It would it'd be great if, for example, if, if Chrome were, were to build this in too. I have sort of seen some, some, some Google and Mozilla, um, the, 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 the sense that they're working together, um, which is, you know, a, a nice thing to see. Yeah. Um, so I just think Open ID is there. It's it's open. We support it. We maybe not a whole lot of sites support it, but we support it. And I just I think that's the one that we should choose. Well, the, okay. What you need though, in order to use Open ID, is you need to be known to some other oh, service. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. That, so well, so this doesn't need that. No, this doesn't. See, that is a good point. You can you store the authentication credentials on your own system. Correct. Yeah, and, that is a good and, point. And, That's the run. You know, you have to use an open ID provider. I mean, right. I use my own website because I have a website. But if you don't have your own website, you have to use an open ID provider. Right. Yeah, that is a disadvantage. You're right. So it'll be interesting to see what what this does. I wanted I wanted to mention it because. Um, it's got the Mozilla guys behind it. Firefox is pushing it. What I what I could see again is is that sophisticated users end up with a hybrid. That is, maybe if 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 if, if people are using Firefox or even you know Chrome because it, it is it is compatible. Firefox is going to you know be very friendly with browser ID, and it's so simple to set this up. You authentic. You verify that you control this email address, and basically you're done. Then, if sites begin supporting browser ID, that will then start to pull it, and I wouldn't have a problem at all if it ended up winning in the long term. That is, if Facebook Connect was sort of an interim solution, but something that just sort of was even easier to use and 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 secure and more private, because you know, as you may have heard, Leo, Facebook is now. Uh, getting a lot of of privacy auditing scrutiny right. over over concerns that you know they're not doing as good a job as they as they should w with the privacy of their users. The advantage they have, of course, is such a massive user base. Well, yeah, and regardless of how you feel about whether Facebook protects us or not, no private company, Microsoft, Facebook, or Google, should manage this. It's got to be uh, an open and. Uh, uh, non-proprietary solution Ag agnostic and non-proprietary exactly so i mean at least mozilla is an open source foundation and all of that stuff they're not a non-for-profit i mean they're highly profitable uh but i trust them a lot more than i trust facebook um I, you know well, maybe there's a way for open id to work with browser id and then that would be a good a good uh, standard i would support i uh I guess I, you know, I mean, I support this. This is this is good. You're right. We need at least we need a, a number of choices until one determines, you know, becomes the right. Standard. And that's what I think will happen. I, I think um, we'll, we'll. I mean, Firefox has. I mean, even though a lot of us have moved to Chrome, I'm Firefox is still my primary browser. Um, it's got a strong following. If sites begin to support browser ID, I mean, it is 
so easy to use and is so transparent while being secure that that could give it some traction. I mean, yeah. we're, we're still at the early days here. Um, anyway, I wanted to put it on the map of our listeners. I have no doubt we'll be talking about it in the future. Maybe it'll just end up being something that, you know, dies and never goes any further. But uh, the Mozilla guys are excited about it. Um, I like the fact that it is is very straightforward. It uses simple, well-understood crypto. It's open and standards-based um, and, and um, gives us w- – when it's in place, it gives us a, a very simple-to-use solution. And it's trivial to have it in place. Right. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So, well, I'll, you know, and I, the problem is I don't use Mozilla – is there a Chrome plugin I can use? No, don't even need to. You just did it. Leo. I did do it. You I own, have it. You, yeah. Now, I'm if done. you were to log, if you were to log out of myfavoritebeer.org, and then and well, let's, then log let's back let's in, I mean, then go back to myfavoritebeer.org. You can log in using browser ID. It's your, I am on Chrome. Uh, you're right. It says sign in using leoville.com. I sign yeah. in, and now I'm here. That's all there is to it. And it even, and you just, it even got my picture. <laughs> I don't you know did where a, it got that. You did a full, secure, cryptographic login. Yeah. Just, I, mean, I mean, it is shockingly nice. And I, 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 want, I would love our listeners to, to, to put browser ID into YouTube and look at the demo. The, the demo from these guys makes it, it gives you a good sense, um, better than I can in an audio podcast, just for how seamless and transparent this this ends up being. Right. I mean, that's that's what what you did, Leo. Is all there is to it, and that's that's now persistent and sticky. And you can you can log out and log back in with, with just that easily. Good. It it really does work. You, as always, turn us on to the most interesting and not merely interesting, but important stuff. And I thank you for doing that, Steve. Well, we'll see what happens with this. It, again, it, we're in the Wild West, lots of That's competing right. authentication approaches. You know, we're, we're, we're covering them and keeping our listeners current with them, and we'll track them as they evolve. This has been going on for so long. I mean, I go back to Microsoft doing this um, with their Passport single right. sign-on. Eh. <laughs> I still, well, you know what's funny? When I log on to live.com, that's what I use. Uh, yep. It's the same address and password I've had for how many? I shouldn't say that. I should probably change the password now. <laughs> but I mean, I've been using that for all this time, and 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 for a while it was useful because Microsoft owned Expedia, so I used that. Now they've got they've weaned me off of it. They won't accept it anymore. And so yep. more and more, that's what's going to happen um, with you know anybody who has these old systems. Um, single sign-on is an issue, and I think we need it, and we need a secure system. And I think this, uh, you know, this is a contender. I'll give you that. Yeah. I mean, what I like, we have LastPass now because it requires no support right. from the service that you're logging on to. It puts it all over on the browser side. Right. But over time, I think what, what we're going to see is we're going to see, and, and this is what this, the, the, the stats have shown. For example, blogging, uh, like, like sites that require you to log in in order to post a comment. If they give you the option of logging in using your Facebook Connect or using a, a other accounts, and, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if they add browser ID to that because it is, it is also simple for them to add this to their own site. It, I mean, the Mozilla guys have done a fabulous job both on the user experience side and on the, 
on on the re- so-called relying party side, on the side the relying party that that wants to rely on the authentication, they've made it incredibly easy to add this. So, so what has been seen is that when you make it easy to log in to these like throwaway logins, not having to create an account, you just oh log in using Facebook. More people post, more people get involved. And so it behooves sites to make it easy to to log in without having to create accounts for that site. And so that's one of the ways that, that you know, these these alternative uh, single sign-on systems will gain traction. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Steve does the show, uh, we do the show every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC at twit.tv. Um, I won't be here next week. Tom Merritt will be filling in as uh, as we'll do uh, a, yeah. We'll sorry, s- I was, I was, I was saying we we'll we'll do a Q and A with Tom next yeah. week. Sarah and I will be in Paris for Twit in Paris for Le Web. That's going to be a lot of fun. But Tom <laughs> and I Twit in Paris. Tom and I will uh, Tom and I as and others will hold down the fort for us uh, while we're gone, and we will be broadcasting. I should mention six a.m. to ten a.m. Pacific time, six or some, something like that, maybe five a.m. Uh, and then we'll rebroadcast those. We'll package them up and put them out as specials. But there's some, there's so many big names uh, who are going to be at this event. Phil Leibin from Evernote. Uh, Kevin Rose will be there. Dave Morin of Path. There's so many interesting people. We're going to interview them all, and you'll get a chance to see them. So it's a chance. It's funny. We're going to Paris to meet the biggest names in U.S. entrepreneurship. <laughs> and you'll get to see those interviews uh, on Twit next week. Uh, let's see. What else should I tell you? Oh, I've, I've conferred with Eileen. She likes the idea of a sci-fi special. It's going to be a scheduling issue because not, then I come back from Paris and then I leave on the 20th, uh, for Christmas vacation. So we'll, we'll figure this out. I won't be here on the 21st for our show either. Tom will be doing that as well. Okay. Um, but now Tom would be good for a sci-fi special because, you know, he does sword and laser. He does a sci-fi podcast. So he's an expert on all this stuff. But if we can work it out, I want to be here. If we can, we'll do it with you and me. Otherwise, it'll be you and Tom. Yeah, and you and I have such a history of discussing all of the things that we found. And you know uh, Hamilton so well and right. so forth. So. Right. We'll figure it out. Tom might yeah. bring something to the table, though. Don't You know, he's always yeah. good for this stuff. Yeah. What else can I tell you? GRC.com is a place to go to find Steve's software, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive, recovery and maintenance utility. you got to have Spindrive. That's been right. But you should also check out all this free stuff there. Somebody was asking um, how it goes with uh, which project was it? Was it the, off the grid, I think it was. That's done, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, I finished the, the final printing page yesterday and I removed the this page is under construction or whatever it was that I had set up at the top. That's gone now that the off the grid printing is absolutely finalized. I need to get, it's still not linked into the main menu. So you would have to go to grc.com slash off the grid in order to find it. Uh, you can't get there through the menu because I want to, I need to now just finish up the rest of the web pages, all the documentation, but it's completely wrapped up. So I'm really pleased with that. Yay. 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 When you go there, you'll also uh, find a feedback form so that you can ask questions for next week's episode. GRC.com slash feedback. 16 kilobit versions of the show uh, for the audio uh, bandwidth impaired. Uh, Full transcriptions, too. That's even more compact if you just want to read the transcription. Steve makes both of those available. We've got audio and video available at twit.tv. Thank you, Steve. Great show. Really interesting stuff, I thought. 
Yeah, this is important. Well, you know, someday we'll look back on this and think, wow, that's the way they used to do things. That's so strange. But you know, those days, <laughs> you know, now I just put my nose against the screen and it knows it's me. <laughs> hey, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Leo. Uh, Tom. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Tom will be here next week. And have a great week. Uh, and we'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.